No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring too much. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. This is the beginning of season three of No Gray Zone and the start of our series Return to Campus. To kick us off, we have the amazing Kenyora Parham, the executive director of End Rape on Campus, or EROC. Kenyora is a thought leader in the movement to end gender-based violence, a business owner, and has served over the past decade in many different capacities to help college students, families, college administrators, and government leaders to solve some of the biggest problems facing our country today. This includes, obviously, ending sexual violence on college campuses. She's also served the late Mayor Thomas Menino of Boston and of Massachusetts and Massachusetts' very own Congresswoman, Ayanna Presley, in her capacity as Councilwoman. We are so excited for this conversation and so welcome. Thank you, Melissa and Catherine, for having me. I'm absolutely, absolutely excited to be here and be another voice on your podcast. <laughs> we are thrilled to have your voice. You have such a strong background in women-centered spaces, which we think is essential in driving the conversation, specifically when it comes to gender-based crimes. So we know that led you to actually start your own company, but how did you end up from your initial goals and starting your company to becoming the executive director of End Rape on Campus or EROC? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny with this question. I've actually been getting this a lot lately and I've been doing a lot of reflecting over the past couple of months and weeks. And so, you know, where I'll start is really about like even how I got here from like kind of the beginning. (laughs) So um, I grew up in, you know, a maternal household where my Costa Rican grandmother, my mother and my aunt really instilled in me the power of womanhood resiliency and community. I was also the only child growing up with my mother who was a very young teenager herself as she was raising me. And my mom's whole goal was to ensure that I didn't follow in her footsteps in terms of becoming another teenage mom, ending up as she would say, another statistic in the black community. And so she didn't want me to endure any of the hardships that she did, the lack of resources she had aside from family. My mother had to figure out a lot of things on her own. She also enrolled me in schools that she felt were good enough for me. She was an active parent in my education. And she also gave me the opportunity to choose where I wanted to go for schools. And I'm talking about elementary school to middle school. (laughs) She would even give me the pros and cons and allow me to figure out for myself, like what that looked like. She would also take me to school with her. So that way I was exposed to high school specifically. So it was right there and then at the tender age of three, where I am, you know, 
in a high school classroom learning, not really knowing what's going on, but just because of that exposure, you know, I was like, oh, I aspire to not only go to high school, but I also aspire to go to college. So if we fast forward, you know, I decided to attend a private women's centered college, Simmons University. I became a member of a sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and have essentially worked with mostly women-centered organizations. I'm also a Girls Inc. alum of Lynn, Massachusetts, which really had a positive impact on my upbringing. And I would even say that as a girl participant, that had a larger purpose for me where I was actually able to understand what I wanted to do you know, moving forward in my career. I like to think that back then I knew that I had a purpose of working within women and girl centered spaces, just wasn't sure what that looked like. But when it comes to my career, what I found myself is being in spaces that have been predominantly white spaces in which I've had to navigate through the pressure of being the only sole black woman, staff member, having to either somewhat teach folks (laughs) in the moment what's happening and having to at times advocate for myself, especially when it comes to being understood. And so over the years, I've understood for myself just how unapologetic I can be, especially when it comes to being a Black woman. And so I decided to create a space for others who not only look like me, but for other people of color who are at the intersections of their identities, trying to figure out how do I get to that next, you know, place in my career? How do I get to the C-suite when I'm navigating all of these other hardships? And then when we talk about rape on campus, I didn't actually start off as the executive director. I started off as the staff director. And a part of what I was positioned to do essentially was what I like to think I did, was really create a more fun, welcoming environment for staff to really feel that they can not only do the work that is exhausting, especially when we talk about campus sexual assault. But a part of my job was to essentially help staff utilize EROC as a stepping stone in their careers. Because we know that within this work, within EROC, it's exhausting. And, you know, how do we ensure that one, we're putting ourselves out of business because that's the end, the ultimate goal, right? But also when we finally do that, or if we get burnt out, or if we decide that, you know, the next step in my career is not campus sexual assault or sexual assault um, movement in general, what's that next stepping stone? And so I really was that person who would have those types of conversations with the staff to say, okay, what does that support look like in terms of me helping you to get to wherever it is you're trying to go in the next year, in the next three years, in the next five years? And then fast forward, I became executive director of Emory Pond Campus. I'm not going to go into great detail as to why that happened, um, but just more so to say that we had to downsize dramatically. So currently I have been the only sole <laughs> staff member of Iraq really holding down the fort. And so, you know, with everything that I've learned over my career experience, I feel like I was poised and set up for success in terms of 
you know, what I've encountered and what I've navigated that allowed me to be in this current space today. You know, I, I love how you talk about how you want to create spaces for women and women of color, you know, to be able to kind of help them push themselves forward like you've been able to do. And I think that that's why Catherine and I love End Rape on Campus so much, because it really is grounded in, you know, survivorship and how, you know, survivors can empower themselves and kind of work together to help end uh, the epidemic of sexual assault on campus. So for those of the, our listeners who may not have heard of EROC, can you talk a little bit about the organization and who EROC serves? Absolutely. So the mission focuses on ending campus sexual assault by providing direct support services for student survivors in their communities, prevention, education, and policy reform on the campus, local, state, and federal levels. And 2013, Iraq was actually founded by students, some of whom which a lot of people know, Annie Clark and Andrea Pino from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Sophie Karesk. Honestly, I hate if I have butchered her name. I have not yet to meet her. So sorry, Sophie, if I meant if I pronounced your last name. Um, but Sophie was also a student from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and at the time, no organization was exclusively dedicated to supporting survivors of campus sexual violence, especially with educational programming and advocacy at that time. So the original aims was to show campus sexual assault as a nationwide epidemic and support survivors by helping them to file Office of Civil Rights Title IX complaints against their schools which really expanded to assisting over a hundred federal civil rights cases, over a thousand students at the time, and even helping to create and inspire the creation of a parent organization called uh, Parents Take Action to End Rape on Campus or PTA EROC. And also an unaffiliated chapter, which is located in Australia, EROC Australia. It also was a time for us to engage in a number of different grassroots organizing campaigns like hashtag Dear Betsy or hashtag Hands Off Nine with one of our advocacy partners, Know Your Nine. And EROC really started to mobilize and spread awareness of the red zone which is where at least 50% of campus sexual assault incidences take place during the months of August, September, October, and November, and known as hashtag Reclaim Red Zones. And it really was about shifting the narrative and refocusing on the fact that women are at fault for why sexual assault happens. And it really to spread awareness of the fact that, first off, no one is ever at fault for what happens to them when it comes to sexual assault. Second, this isn't just about women, but it's about everyone who are at the intersections of their identity, who are looking for resources, who are looking to be heard, who are looking to be seen, and who are looking to be believed. And so a lot of what EROC has done in the past, we still continue to do that to this day. Even today, we actually co-hosted a virtual town hall um, on Title IX with our partners It's On Us and Valerie Jarrett, who's the former senior advisor to President Obama. And during that conversation is where we were able to share clarity on the current status of Title IX and how people can engage with us of what's to come from the Department of Education. As we said, we love EROC and we love everything it stands for. And we know there's been a ton of work on Title IX and the end the red zone. But we also know that under your direction, you are work is working on refocusing and addressing some new campaigns with EROC. And one of the ones that 
we really like and the importance that you're actually putting on it is the Centering the Margins campaign. We like this campaign because on No Gray Zone, we've talked in prior episodes about truth regarding the rates of sexual assault in minority communities and LGBTQI communities, how they are underserved just in general for services, for prevention education, and the fact that EROC wants to put such an emphasis on centering the margins. But that's just our interpretation of it. So can you talk about this campaign and how EROC is going about achieving the goals of centering the margins? Absolutely. So let me also first off state that centering the margins isn't new to EROC. It actually began in, I believe, 2016, 2017 by a former staff member. And back then it was to really center the voices of historically marginalized student survivors. But over time, what we what I've noticed in my own work <laughs> within EROC, just you know, learning about the history is that that framing essentially shifted but the focus was still integrated into the work that EROC was doing. So when I became executive director, I said, why not reshift that framing and actually utilize it as a framework for what we do? And so especially now with the current COVID-19 pandemic that we're in, hopefully we're able to get out of very sooner rather than later, the political climate and the heightened awareness around systemic oppression and the Me Too movement. It's important to me that we really shift our priorities that really centralize that framework on centering the margins. Because what we really want to do is ensure that historically marginalized student survivors of sexual violence are centered that virtual community spaces and mental health resources are provided for them, and that policy legislation protects their rights and allows schools to be held accountable. And so by launching CTM as a true initiative, so it's it's bigger than a campaign, and we want to integrate it as part of the framework for what we do in terms of our, our programs that we provide and our initiatives that we create. Because when we also advocate for policy reform, we're talking about the historically marginalized student survivors as well. Because we want Iraq to really be seen as an intersectional, powerful movement builder in this field. And so everything that we do will be integrated under the umbrella of centering the margins. And I think we really do need to do more as a country to ensure that not only campus sexual assault, but sexual assault in general, our response to it is inclusive, that this campaign and initiative is going to is going to help with that. But we can't avoid talking about the elephant in the room, which is what you kind of just mentioned, the huge changes to Title IX. I know you said you guys just did Facebook Live talk about it. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you think the most problematic change was with Title IX. I know all of it, but <laughs> but just what you know, what you think when you're looking at it from the perspective as the executive director of EROC, what is the biggest challenge and, and what are you hoping will be the first change that's made to the, the new rules? First, I, I just want to share like a statistic that has always been imprinted on my mind since I since I learned of it. And I believe it's from the Bureau of Justice that states uh, for every black woman who reports 15 do not. And so therefore, when we talk about, you know, pre-existing historically cultural stereotypes that are not only placed on Black women, but Latinx survivors, LGBTQ survivors, everyone who's at the intersection of their identities, we're creating multiple layers of barriers for students to gain access to 
education or to receive, you know, the justice that they so deserve after sexual assault, as well as access to resources. So when I think about Title IX as they currently stand, for me, fundamentally, it's the definition of sexual harassment itself. The former Department of Education narrowed that definition to be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it effectively denies a person's access to the school's education program or activity, and adding that it could be considered harassment if a reasonable person would even say it was. So what that says to me is that students have to, first off, endure repeated levels of sexual violence before their school even takes their case seriously. This allows schools to then be let off the hook, essentially, in terms of really taking on that case and really doing some investigations. Schools are mandated to discuss complaints that do not meet sexual harassment definition, even if the allegations have been proven true. So therefore, they're setting, they've set a new precedent for institutions to not take sexual assault violence seriously, just from the definition itself. And, you know, if a student doesn't meet that definition, as I mentioned, schools are able to ignore it, dismiss it, and also add to the fact that when we think even further down the line of Title IX and an investigation is being conducted, schools have the ability to use unfair re-traumatizing procedures that include live cross-examination hearings that are already traumatizing in and of itself. But then when you add the, the fact where both parties can essentially choose who their advisor is of choice, there's no definition that centers who that advisor of choice can be. And so you can have the assailant or how they say the respondent um, within Title IX who can essentially choose their best friend, a parent, a lawyer, anyone of their choosing to essentially question the survivor. And of course, they may not be in the same room, but just the fact that they're able to, that person of, of their perpetrator's choice, it's, that's traumatizing. And let's say if that person also chooses their best friend who might have been there when the sexual assault occurred, that's even more re-traumatizing because then you have someone who's essentially a bystander who's not actually speaking up and speaking for, hey, I actually saw that this happened. And so that to me are the most detrimental changes to Title IX. And I'm just glad that we are now in a phase where we're under a new administration that seems to be taken seriously the fact that we need to overhaul, do a complete overhaul of Title IX, but they're doing it by the book. And that's what I appreciate. You know, we, we couldn't agree more. It's, it's kind of crazy that with the changes to Title IX that took effect last fall, Melissa and I now as prosecutors, we go and train schools and universities and boards of education on how to do a proper trauma-informed Title IX investigation because they've basically made it a quasi-criminal process, not what Title IX should be. And so now here we are as prosecutors trying to teach trauma-informed investigation to schools. They're not detectives. They don't have subpoena power. They don't have the ability for search warrants, but they're being held to the same standards with preponderance of the evidence, with relevant testimony, with the fact that you know, Title IX trial boards can't consider evidence unless that witness actually shows up, but they can't force that witness to be there. So it's actually, it's worse than a quasi-criminal process. We Absolutely. at least have some things to fall back on. We are joining you and hoping 
meaningful change. We, we think it's the right step when President Biden signed the executive order on guaranteeing an educational environment free from discrimination on the basis of sex, including sexual orientation or gender identity for the first time. And so where do you hope the administration is actually going to focus their efforts with regard to this space? Yeah, I mean, I really hope that the Department of Education truly, 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 truly listens to student survivors, number one, first and foremost, and really rebuild that trust that has essentially been washed away due to the previous administration's rolling back of their protections. And I believe by gaining their trust, they have to listen to student survivors first and foremost, you know, rebuilding that trust with them again because there have been so many changes and because students are currently still going through the current Title IX changes. And, you know, they need to really readdress what has been done and talk about how they're going to create a real transformative survivor-centered policy, one that is truly intersectional at that. I, I was happy when the, the Office of Civil Rights had put out their letter stating that they actually acknowledge and recognize that there are students who are at the intersections of their identities who deal with sexual assault in different ways and disproportionately in other ways. And so I see that they are taking initiative and in recognizing that, but now that we know with what's to come with the future public hearing and the reopening of comment process, the NPRM process, that it's like now folks have a chance to really say, okay, Yes, you've acknowledged, but now are you going to listen and take into account how these things have been truly effective in terms of my ability to gain access to education? And what are you going to do to ensure that schools are not only held accountable, that, but also in addition to any violations that they do violate, that those processes that you have in place in terms of violations are actually being pushed forward and are enforced and that we're actually seeing schools truly be held accountable by way of the standards that, that the federal government has taken. And so, you know, in the most recent news, we even seen confusion arise when it comes to LGBTQ student survivors and how foreign administration have removed guidance in order to give folks clarity and on what's going on and how if they really are explicitly a part of uh, being protected under Title IX. And so, it's created a, a storm <laughs> of complexity and nuance that is just absolutely ridiculous. And so I'm just, I'm hopeful and glad that under this current administration and with Secretary Miguel Cardona in the Department of Education is truly recognizing that there really needs to be some deep, deep thought, deep dive that we really need to take Title IX apart and really understand like how is this affecting students? What are the loopholes that exist as well? And so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how the, these next couple of months pan out under the Department of Education. Absolutely, and I think that you know if they do focus on the survivors and what they you know have experienced and how they can make that better, um, or we can be hopeful that at least they that in the future people who experience sexual assault can can have a better experience than so many survivors have had over, you know, the last two, three decades. And we're really hopeful for that. And I know that, you know, this coming year, we have kind of like a, I don't want to say a storm, a brewing, but we have kind of this, this. It's a storm. We can go with it's a storm. 
Um, where we have two classes of students who are going to be coming to campus for the first time, right? They're going to be experiencing college for the first time. Some of them are going to be experiencing leaving their houses uh, for the first time in a year and a half um, due to the the COVID-19 pandemic. And so how does EROC hope to engage those students and the advocates you already have on campus to try to prevent sexual assault and violence from occurring? Because we know these, these kids are going to be drinking and not like you said, in the, the red zones, you know, what, what are you guys doing or what do you guys hope to do to engage students to try to prevent sexual violence on campus? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, we have the Centering the Margins framework in which we'll be really moving forward in the work that we'll be doing. And currently, I'm actually hiring for a program manager to help me push forward some of our Centering the Margins programs initiatives, one of which includes a National Student Survivor Leadership Council that really equips students with, one, understanding their rights under Title IX, understanding their rights even under Title VI, as well as Title II, and really providing them with the opportunity to learn best practices from other folks in the field who are doing this work on how to grassroots organize on their own campus, as well as how to take other actions as well, and really build a, a national action plan that Iraq, you know, would be really focusing on. And so another program we're going to do is called our speaker, Survive, uh, speaker series, which really is comprised of a number of different activists, survivors, other folks in the field who are experts, whether it's in domestic violence fields or whether it's really just about what it means to be a student survivor, where we're, you know, really talking about kind of historical roots of sexual violence um, and really being able to provide trainings and workshops for any group or set of folks who are looking to figure out what their role is in ending campus sexual violence. And so members who are part of the speaker series will essentially be providing training for high schools, corporations, other universities to really take a deep dive in, you know, how white supremacy plays a role and what we can do to really mitigate and undo um, what's happening. And it can also range, you know, these trainings can range from a number of different topics too, in terms of like knowing your rights under Title IX, as well as bystander training, or even if folks want to get down to the nitty gritty about how, you know, um, students of color are, are affected and what can we really do to become allies for student survivors and really talking about the, the power of allyship. So that's, that's kind of two programs. Another program that we're looking to share hopefully in the fall is called our Campus Accountability Map in School. And what this platform will be able to do is allow users to view in-depth information on the institution's sexual assault investigation policies their prevention efforts and available survivor support resources, as well as some high level statistics on definitions, trainings, sanctions, and investigations that are happening on their respective campus or maybe on a perspective campus that if they're a high school student who's like, oh, I wanna know what's happening at BU or Simmons, I'm only uh, acknowledging those two because those are my alma maters, but <laughs> you know, I wanna know what's happening, what's the differences here and I want to know, like, how important do they really, you know, engage in this work to ensure that their students are able to gain an education that is free from violence? And so users will essentially be able to utilize the map side to really compare the metrics between the schools, 
gain a better understanding of what these policies look like across the nation through a true user-friendly interface. And then on the tools side is where, you know, let's say a student is, you know, has just endured sexual assaults, whether on or off campus, and they're looking for resources. It's kind of like a step-by-step -step guide of like, okay, here's what you need to know. And here's the decisions that you can make totally up to you, which direction you want to go. Here's what you need to know in terms of your Title IX office and what that process looks like. Here's what you should also know if you don't report anything, which is also completely fine because you have the right to do so. And also here's what's available around your local area that has other survivor support services or even some digital virtual resources as well, especially when we're talking about students who are at the intersections of their identities that may not have those types of resources on their campus. And so we're trying to make sure that we can provide a platform that's accessible, easy to use, and really gets down to the nitty gritty of what students should know. And it's not just for students, it can be parents, it can be people who just, are just wanna know what's happening, what's going on. And you know, we, we hope that this tool will really be something that can be utilized as part of research. Because all the data that we'll have is really public data that we'll, that we'll use from the government and really being able to allow folks to say, to, to utilize this as a more synthesized version of like, Here's what's happening on this on this campus in terms of crime data support. And so hoping that we can launch this come in the fall. And then, of course, our Reclaim Red Zones campaign that we'll do. Um, and I believe we're going to we're going to do that again in partnership with the Every Voice Coalition, as we did last year. We may not do the 11 week series that we did last year, but <laughs> we'll do something for sure to continue that momentum. And then as we even look further in the future in terms of next year, next summer, what we also hope to do is create what's called a survivor activist seminar on transformative action and healing. And this is really designed to bring 100 collegiate survivors, community members, advocates, legal counsel, mental health professionals together for a true week-long intensive of healing and advocacy planning. And the seminar is really aimed to empower student activists with the skills that they would need to successfully organize in their community receive support, best practices and tools on how to develop and execute their own organizing skills and advocacy efforts, as well as enhance their wellness and their, their healing, because that's important, right? We have, to, we have to always reiterate to students, the yes, it's important to take action, but what are you also doing for self-preservation and self-care in this work? Because what you don't want to do is burn out before you graduate. You also don't want to burn out post-graduation if you decide to get into this work. And so we really want to center and emphasize the, the power of, of healing and wellness in the work that we do. Absolutely. I mean, secondary trauma is, is very real as well. And focusing on healing is always important. I think so often it's survivors know your rights, know what your options are, and we give resources, but there's not as much follow-up on how is the healing going Absolutely. and how can we help refocus on healing. When we spoke and you told me about the campus accountability project, I was like, this is brilliant because we know with accountability comes change and no offense to any colleges or universities. And I'll say, you know, hey, University of Arizona, if, you know, my alma mater will we'll throw out our own. But if they know that students and parents are able to watch for these statistics and see how we're responding, that will be a checks and balance 
to make sure that the responses are appropriate, that those margins are being centered, that they're walking the walk and talking the talk because otherwise the pocketbook is going to be impacted. So I think the campus accountability tool is just such a brilliant framework to help truly affect change on campuses. So we can't wait for the rollout. And, you know, we're going to be tracking all the seminars, all the trainings, because the other one that I love that you guys do is bystander training, because I really think it's important for people to understand, oh, we can intervene, I can do something. But we, we also know that EROX had some recent changes just this year, too. You, you've, you are now part of Civic Nation. So can you talk a little bit about that partnership and how joining Civic Nation is helping with the projects and framework of EROC? Absolutely. So EROC is now officially an initiative of, of, of Civic Nation. So that means we're no longer our own standalone 501c3, but we're actually joining Civic Nation as newest member of the family, if you will. Um, And so Civic Nation really utilizes organizing engagement and public awareness to address some of what's going on in our nation's most pressing challenges. And it works to, with the public and with the private um, sectors to really inspire, educate, and advocate people around issues that are important to our country. And so by being under Civic Nation, especially under specifically the gender equity vertical, which also includes the United States of Women and It's On Us, we're able to really expand our learning, our impact, and really cross-pollinate across intersectional movements while creating systems for sustainability. So some of our projects are, again, as I mentioned, are really focused under the CTM framework and really giving students the ability and opportunity to truly be a part of the conversation. And so we're really able to really center in and narrow in on our mission and our vision and the work because we have such a foundation with Civic Nation to focus on the other kind of administrative and you know, taxes and things like that, which is great. And so what that has also allowed us to do is really partner with, you know, our gender equity vertical partners, like it's on us. Um, Ever since we were a part, have become a part of Civic Nation, we've been doing a lot of great work with one another, especially under COVID-19. Back in March, we held our first survivor check-in. And that really is what inspired us to one, not only check in with survivors to see what's happening, what's going on and how COVID-19 has affected them and has forced them essentially to move off campus once the pandemic started, but it also allowed us to understand that because of the pandemic, student survivors are now having an increase in their anxiety and isolation, not understanding you know, where to go to because the resources they did have on school are now stopped because they don't have access to those things anymore. And so we decided to create what was called Zoom University, a self-care survivor series. And underneath that, underneath the, the series itself was really to focus on a number of different topic areas and issue areas that have affected student survivors. So whether it's COVID-19, to just like, I'm not feeling it today. Let's talk about mental health and wellness to let's meet with parents who are also, you know, 
wanting to be in community with one another because their children are going through campus sexual assault? What does that look like and how can we provide space? And so we really, you know, so far, I believe we've done maybe 11, (laughs) 11 webinars in the past year, including doing some film Fridays where we highlight uh, films like The University written by Juliana Roth or like plays like Sensitive Guys written by MJ Kaufman. And so we were really trying to bring in different aspects of healing for survivors, as well as let's talk about what's happening with Title IX, really providing space for students to really be in community with one another. And one of the the greatest pieces that we were able to also launch together most recently in partnership with our WAVE is called Survivor Spaces. And this space is really an online community that's designed to empower survivors of sexual assault, whether you're students or an adult, doesn't matter what your status is, where you can share your story anonymously and safely, and also engage in different healing and hope modalities and be in community with other uh, survivors. And it really is an attempt to give control back and the power back to survivors to say, one, you can share your story at any time, You can remove your story from our platform at any time. And you have the power to just share anything and everything that you want anonymously. And so we have folks who are really on the back end that are essentially redacting any identifying information. So that way, any survivors who may share about who their assailant was or a school that they attended or maybe another person within their story those identifying information is actually redacted to preserve the confidentiality um, and privacy uh, of the survivor and those who they're they're speaking about. Um, But the survivors have complete control of their story and are able to say, you know what, I had it up here for about a month. I now want to take it down. I don't want my story up there anymore. And that's perfectly fine. If they want to put it back up, they can put it back up. (laughs) It's completely up to them. But we also recognize that not every survivor may be ready or will ever be ready to share their story. But it really is a space for them to say, oh, well, I now know that I'm not the only one who may have endured this same sexual assault or similar sexual assault experience. And now I feel comfortable with being able to come forward and share mine in this anonymous way. We really hope that we can reach as many survivors as as possible and that they can engage in this healing part of their healing journey because we know it's not linear. It's it's very much <laughs> a, a wave or like, you know, a cross, you know, however you want to illustrate what the path of towards healing looks like. It's not a straightforward one. And so at least what we want to be able to do is provide something that helps them along that along that journey. Absolutely. I think I've seen like a, like a meme where it says it's like all like different uh, drawings in different directions. And it's like, this is the path to healing. Um, Cause you're absolutely right. It's definitely not linear. Kinyura, we love talking to you and we love your passion, not only about gender-based violence on campus, but making sure that everyone's voice is heard in that fight. But that is all the time that we have today. If you want to learn more about Kenyora Title IX and Rape on Campus and Centering the Margins, we will have links to all of that in our notes. It has truly been a pleasure to have you here today, and please come back whenever you want to continue our conversation, and we'll leave uh, the floor to you to anything else you want to add. I just want to say thank you 
to both of you for allowing me to be in this space and to be able to share, you know, what's going on with EROC in our worlds. But I also just want to let any survivors know who are listening that they have the power. The power is all in them, that they are enough and that they can reclaim themselves. They can reclaim and transform and heal and that they have a community that is with them and that they are not alone. And that at any point, if there's anyone who is dealing with sexual assault, especially on campuses, or even if it's not on campus, we're able to help connect them with other folks who are in this field, whether it's through the National Women's Law Center and Time's Up and their legal network, or the Equal Rights Advocates in their Enough Advocate program that they have, that there is a will, there is a way, and we will help them. Uh, we will support them. And most importantly, we see them and we believe them. Thank you so much. It is so important to start with belief. And we can't thank you enough, Kenora, for what you and Iraq do to help eradicate sexual assault and to provide the support to survivors. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. You can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to Title IX. Thank you for listening. I'm just good at caring too much.